Tertium Organum by P. D. Espinsky, read by Alice Flanagan, Chapter 19. Having established the principle of the possible unification of the forms of our knowledge in the intuition, or by the aid of intuition, let us discover if this unification is not somewhere realised, how it may be realised, and whether it will be realised in a form entirely new, or in one of the existing forms which shall include all others in itself. For this, we shall return to the fundamental principles of our knowledge, and compare the possible chances for the development of different paths, i.e., we shall try to find out as best we may that path which leads to intuition, and in the shortest time. Up to a certain point we have already established this regarding the emotional path. The growth of the emotions, their purification and their liberation from the materialistic elements of possession and fear of loss, must lead to the superpersonal knowledge and to intuition. But how can the intellectual path lead to intuition? We realise that all we know intellectually we know either subjectively or objectively. Subjectively as part of ourselves, objectively as part of that which is not ourselves. Let us find out which knowledge, the subjective or the objective, contains the greater possibility of development and which can lead the more quickly to intuition. First of all, what is intuition? Intuition is a direct knowledge, by an inner sense, directly by consciousness. I feel my own pain directly. Intuition can give me the power to sense as mine the pain of another man. Thus, intuition is in itself the expansion of subjective knowledge. But perhaps the intuitive expansion of objective knowledge is possible also. Let us analyse the nature of objective knowledge. Our objective knowledge is contained in science and philosophy. Subjective experience science has always regarded as a thing given, which cannot be changed, but as something doubtful, standing in need of verification and affirmation by the objective method. Science has studied the world as an objective phenomenon, and it is driven to study the eye and its properties as such, as another objective phenomenon. In another quarter, the study of the eye from the inside, so to speak, was proceeding simultaneously with this, but to this study no great significance was ever attached. The limits of subjective knowledge, i.e. the limits of the eye, were considered to be strictly definite, established and unchangeable. Only for objective knowledge was the possibility of expansion admitted. Let us discover if there is not some mistake here. Is the expansion of objective knowledge really possible, and that of subjective knowledge really limited? Developing science, i.e. objective knowledge, is encountering obstacles everywhere. Science studies phenomena. Just as soon as it attempts to discover causes, it is confronted with the wall of the unknown and to it unknowable. The question narrows itself down. Is this unknowable absolutely unknowable, or is it only so for the objective methods of our science? At the present time the situation is just this. The number of unknown facts in every region of scientific knowledge is rapidly increasing, and the unknown threatens to swallow the known, or the accepted as known. One might define the progress of science, especially laterally, as the very rapid growth of the regions of nescience. Nescience, of course, existed before, and not in less degree than at present. But before, it was not so clearly recognised. At that time, science did not know what it does not know. 
Now it knows this more and more, and more and more knows its conditionality. A little more, and in every separate branch of signs, that which it does not know will become greater than that which it knows. In every department, science itself is beginning to repudiate its own foundations. A little more, and science in its entirety will ask, where am I? Positive thinking, which conceived of its problem as the deducing of general conclusions from the finding of each separate science and all of them combined, will feel itself compelled to deduce conclusions from that which science does not know. Then all the world will see before it the colossus with feet of clay, or rather without any feet at all, but with a formidable misty body hanging in the air. For a long time philosophy has realised the lack of feet of this colossus, but the majority of cultivated man is still hypnotised by positivism, which sees something in place of those feet. However, it will be necessary to part with this illusion very soon. Mathematics, lying at the very foundation of positive knowledge, and to which exact science always pointed with pride, as to its subject and vassal, is in reality now denying all positivism and establishing idealism. Mathematics was included in the cycle of positive sciences only by mistake, and soon indeed mathematics will become the principal weapon against positivism. By positivism I mean, in this connection, that system which affirms, in contradiction to Kant, that the study of phenomena can bring us nearer to the things in themselves, i.e., which affirms that going along the path of study of phenomena, we can come to an understanding of causes. The usual positivistic view denies the existence of the hidden side of life, i.e. it finds that the hidden side opens to us only little by little, and that the progress of science consists in the gradual unveiling of the hidden. This is not known yet, says the positivist, when his attention is called to something hidden, but it will be known. Science, going by the same path that it has gone up to now, will discover this also. Five hundred years ago, Europe did not know the existence of America. Fifty years ago, we did not know the existence of bacteria. Fifteen years ago, we did not know the existence of radium. But America, bacteria and radium are all discovered now. Similarly, and by the same methods, and by such methods only, will be discovered everything that is to be discovered. The apparatuses are being perfected. The methods, processes and observations are being refined. That which we did not even suspect a hundred years ago has now become a generally known and generally understood fact. Everything that is possible to be known will become known after this manner. Thus do the adherents of the positivistic viewpoint speak, but at the foundation of these reasonings lies a deep delusion. The affirmation of positivism would be quite true did positivism move quite uniformly in all directions of the unknown, if sealed doors did not exist for it, if in the multitude of questions the principal questions did not remain just as obscure as in those times when science did not exist at all. We see that enormous regions are closed utterly to science, that it never penetrated into them, and worst of all it made not a single step in the direction of these regions. There are multitudes of problems the solving of which science has not even attempted, problems in the presence of which the contemporary scientist, armed with all his science, is as helpless as a savage or a four-year-old child. Such are the problems of life and death, the problems of space and time, the mystery of consciousness, etc., etc. 
We all know this and the only thing we can do is to try not to think about the existence of these problems, to forget about them. They continue to exist and at any given moment we may turn to them and try on them the rigidity and force of our scientific method. And every time at such an attempt we find that our scientific method is not equal to these problems. By its aid we can discover the chemical composition of remote stars, can photograph the skeleton of human body invisible to the human eye, can invent a floating mind which can be controlled from a distance by means of electrical waves, and can in this way annihilate in a moment hundreds of lives. But by the aid of this method we cannot tell what the man standing beside us is thinking about. No matter how much we weigh, sound or photograph a man, we shall never know his thoughts at any given moment unless he himself tells them to us. But this is truly quite a different method. The sphere of action of method of exact science is strictly limited. This sphere is the world of the objective. In the world of the subjective, exact science has never penetrated and will never penetrate. The expansion of objective knowledge at the expense of subjective is impossible. In spite of all the growth of the objective sciences, the borderline between them and the world of the subjective remains in the same place. Could science take a single step in this direction? Were it able to explain something subjective in the terms of the objective, then it might admit that it could take two, three, ten, and ten thousand steps but it has never taken even one, and it is therefore reasonable to believe that it will never take it. The world of the subjective is closed to the objective investigation, and for this quite definite causes exist. By no means everything that exists has an objective existence, i.e. not everything can be made objective. Negative quantities exist, but they do not exist objectively. Such logical concepts as good, evil, truth, beauty, matter, motion and so forth also exist, but they do not exist objectively in the sense that this inkstand, that table, yonder wall exist. All metaphysical facts exist, but they do not exist objectively. Objective existence is a very narrowly defined form of existence and does not by any means exhaust or comprehend existence as a whole. The mistake of positivism consists in the fact that it has recognised as really existing only that which exists objectively, and it has even begun to deny the very existence of that which is not objective. But what is objectivity? We can define it in this way. Because of the properties of our consciousness, or because of the conditions under which our consciousness works, we segregate a small number of facts into a definite group. This group of facts represents in itself the objective world and is accessible to the investigation of science. But in no case does this group represent in itself everything that is existing. Alongside of this group we may place another one, the group of the subjective. What is the subjective? That is which we feel directly. My toothache is for me a subjective phenomenon. Another's toothache is for me a concept only. It is true that it is accompanied by or has as its cause the objective phenomenon, a decayed tooth. But the pain itself, when it is someone else's pain, is only a concept. The subjective, this is what I feel myself, directly as part of me. The subjective constitutes its own separate group. 
In every man this group is different. In one it may be smaller, in another greater. For one the whole series of sensations, musical for instance, belongs to the region of the subjective. For another the entire series remains a concept. Undoubtedly, however, the region of the subjective may expand considerably by the aid of special education and training. If we take the contemporary average man, we may say that everything existing is divided for him into three groups, the objective, the subjective, and that which is neither objective nor subjective, such as a negative magnitude, and generally such facts as are known to him as concepts only. The question consists in this, by which path will the expansion of sciences go, by the path of the objective, or by the path of the subjective? With regard to a very large class of facts, we may boldly declare that the expansion of the objective science in their direction is impossible. An abstract concept will never become an objective phenomenon, the thoughts of another man, and my own, will never become for me an objective phenomenon. The objective method is insufficient and unfit for the study of the phenomena of consciousness. Another method is necessary. Everything points to the fact that by the positive method it is possible to advance in definite conditional directions only. Science has not taken one step in the direction of the objective knowledge of the subjective, and evidently cannot take any step. Moreover, objective knowledge is founded upon subjective and cannot exist without it, though subjective knowledge can exist perfectly without objective knowledge. If we strictly analyse the substance of objective knowledge, we shall see that it consists of subjective elements. We have already made in part such an analysis in discussing time and space. Extension in space and extension in time, this is the first condition of objective existence and yet the forms of the extension of a thing in space and those of its existence in time are created by the cognizing subject and do not belong to the thing in itself. This last consideration permits us to part with all the hypotheses of the five states of matter, energetic and psychophysical emanations, etc. All these hypotheses suffer from one common defect – they do not take into consideration the fact that materiality or energism is a complex property belonging not to the thing, but to our receptivity of the thing. Furthermore, they do not take into consideration that materiality cannot belong to those things that are not perceived by us as material things, just as certain properties of materiality cannot belong to a thing without certain others. Matter consists not of atoms, but of our sensations of it. If there are no sensations, or at least the possibility of them, then there is no matter. Matter, which is imponderable, invisible, without mass, etc., is sheer nonsense, as it is a carriage without wheels, without seats, without body, without floor, without top, without doors. It will be anything but a carriage. Matter is first of all three-dimensional. This three-dimensionality is the form of our receptivity. Matter of four dimensions is just as impossible a thing as a square triangle. In order to understand this and not to be attracted by the naive spiritualistic and theosophical theories about five states of matter, it is necessary to understand that all these theories do not lead us out of the sphere of three dimensions and cannot lead us out. 
all these finer matters are entirely three-dimensional, and their materiality is not diminished by their fineness at all. What is materiality? Materiality. This is the condition of existence in space and time, i.e. a condition of existence under which, at one time and in one place, two similar phenomena cannot occur. This is an exhaustive definition of materiality. It is clear that under the conditions known to us, two similar phenomena, occurring simultaneously in one place, will compose one phenomenon. But this is obligatory for those conditions of existence which we know, i.e. for matter. For the universe, it is absolutely not obligatory. We constantly observe the conditions of materiality in those cases in which we must create in our life a sequence of phenomena, or are obliged to select because matter does not permit us to juxtapose in a definite interval of time more than one certain number of phenomena. The necessity for selection is perhaps the chief visible sign of materiality. Outside of matter, the necessity for selection is done away with, and if we imagine the life of a feeling being independent of the conditions of materiality, such a being will be capable of possessing simultaneously such faculties as from our standpoint are incompatible, opposite, or eliminative of one another. The power of being in several places at the same time, to command different views, to perform opposite and mutually exclusive actions simultaneously. In speaking of matter, it is necessary always to remember that matter is not a substance, but a condition. Suppose, for example, that a man is blind. It is impossible to regard his blindness as a substance. It is a condition of the existence of a given man. Matter is some sort of blindness. For these reasons, it is perfectly useless and naive to hope that any subjective phenomena as thoughts and feelings can by any possibility be shown to exist objectively, although only slightly material, thus reducing everything existing to the objectively existing. There is objective knowledge and there is subjective knowledge. Let us now investigate the possibilities of progress in the one and in the other. Objective knowledge can grow infinitely, its progress depending on the perfection of its instruments and the refinement of its methods of observation and experiment. One thing only it cannot transcend, the limits of the three-dimensional sphere, i.e. the conditions of space and time, for the reason that objective knowledge is created under these conditions, and the conditions of the existence of the three-dimensional world are the conditions of its existence. Objective knowledge will always be subject to these conditions, for otherwise it will cease to exist. No apparatus, no instrument will ever conquer these conditions, for should they conquer, they would destroy themselves first of all. Perpetual motion would be the only victory over the three-dimensional world, in the three-dimensional world itself. Objective knowledge does not study facts, but only the perception of facts. Subjective knowledge studies the facts, the facts of consciousness, which let us remember we have found out to be the only real facts. Thus, objective knowledge has to do with the unreal, with the reflected, with the imaginary world. Subjective knowledge has to do with the real world. In order that objective knowledge shall transcend the limits of the three-dimensional sphere, 
it is necessary that the conditions of the subjective receptivity shall change. So long as this does not happen, our objective knowledge is confined within the limits of an infinite three-dimensional sphere. It can proceed indefinitely upon the radii of that sphere, but it will never penetrate into that region, a section of which constitutes our three-dimensional world. Moreover, we know from the preceding that should our subjective receptivity become more limited, then objective knowledge would be correspondingly limited also. It is impossible to convey to a dog the idea of the sphericity of the earth. To make it remember the weight of the sun and the distances between the planets is equally impossible. Its objective knowledge is vastly more personal than ours, and the cause of it lies in the dog's more limited psyche. Thus, we see that objective knowledge depends upon the properties of the subjective knowledge. Or, to put it differently, the degree of subjective knowledge determines the degree of objective knowledge. Indeed, between the objective knowledge of a savage and that of a Herbert Spencer, but that of neither one nor the other transcends the limits of the three-dimensional sphere, i.e. the limits of the conditional, unreal. In order to transcend the three-dimensional sphere, it is necessary to expand subjective knowledge. The expansion of subjective knowledge is the expansion of the limits of the I, the expansion of the focus of consciousness, the inclusion in it simultaneously of many heterogeneous eyes, which usually tend to exclude one another. Is the expansion of the limits of the I possible? And I will remind you that's the letter I. The study of complex forms of consciousness assures us that it is possible. The expansion of subjective knowledge, the expansion of the limits of the I, means this. The inclusion of our I of that which usually is perceived as not I. The limits of the I are very conditional and in general indefinite. Animals, though yet imperfectly conscious of their I, unite it with that towards which they are striving at any given moment. Man limits his I by his body. Studying the world, he refers his body to the region of the not-I and accepts as the I, the inner, the knowing centre only. With the expansion of consciousness, the expansion of the I proceeds further. Without defining the matter more exactly, we may say that our sense of our I changes with the changes of the forms of consciousness. Plotinus, the famous Alexandrian philosopher, 3rd century, affirmed that for perfect knowledge the subject and object must be united, that the rational agent and the thing being comprehended must not be separate. And Aspensky quotes, For that which sees is itself the thing which is seen, and in brackets selected works of Plotinus, Bones Library, page 271. End of quote, and Aspensky continues, here it is indeed necessary to understand to see in the sense of intuition. But what forms of consciousness exist? Hindu philosophy makes the division into four states of consciousness, sleep, dream, waking, and the state of absolute consciousness, Turiya. And this is asterisked. According to the interpretation of the Southern Hindu school of occultism, the four states of consciousness are understood in somewhat different order. The most remote from the true, the most illusory, is the walking state. The second, sleep, is already nearer to the true. The third, deep sleep, without dreams, contact with the true. And the fourth, samadhi, or ecstasy, union with the true. 
and this is bracketed, the ancient wisdom, Annie Besant. Spensky continues, According to our terminology, these four states of consciousness will be the potential state of consciousness, consciousness in potentiality, sleep, the illusory state of consciousness, the vision of dreams, i.e. no division into I and not I, the objectivization of one's forms of perception, then clear consciousness, the waking consciousness, the division into I and not I, and lastly, the unknown fourth state of consciousness about which our scientific psychology has only a very vague conception, ecstasy. G.R.S. Mead in the preface to Taylor's translation of Plotinus, Bones Library, correlates the terminology of Shankaracharya, the leader of the Advaita Vedanta school of ancient India, with that of Plotinus, and Dispensky quotes, the first or spiritual state was ecstasy. From ecstasy it forgot itself into deep sleep. From profound sleep it woke out of unconsciousness, but still within itself, into the internal world of dreams. From dreaming it passed finally into the thoroughly waking state and the art of world of sense. And this is also asterisked, I bid page XXVII. And Aspensky continues. Ecstasy is the term used by Plotinus. It is entirely identical with the term Turiya of Hindu psychology. Under ordinary conditions, the consciousness is surrounded by what constitutes its sense organs and receptive apparatus in the phenomenal world. It differentiates the subjective from the objective, divides the world into I and not I, and discerns its forms of perception from reality. It recognises the phenomenal objective world as reality, and dreams as unreality, and includes along with it, as being unreal, the entire subjective world. Its vague sensation of real things, lying beyond that which is apprehended by the organs of sense, i.e. sensations of noumena, consciousness identifies as it were with dreams, with the unreal, imaginary, abstract, subjective, and regards phenomena as the only reality. Gradually convinced by reason of the unreality of phenomena, or inwardly sensing this unreality, and the reality which lies behind, consciousness frees itself from the mirage of phenomena, sees that all the phenomenal world is in substance subjective also, that the great realities lie deeper down. Then the complete change takes place in consciousness in all its concepts about reality. That which before was regarded as real becomes unreal, and that which was regarded as unreal becomes real, and the consciousness transcends, i.e. returns to that state of absolute consciousness out of which it came. This transition into the absolute state of consciousness is union with divinity, vision of God, experiencing the kingdom of heaven, entering nirvana, all these expressions of mystical religions represent the psychological fact of the expansion of consciousness, such an expansion that the consciousness absorbs itself in the all. C. W. Leadbeater, in an essay, Some Notes on the Higher Plains, Nirvana, The Theophysist, July 1910, writes, and quotes, Sir Edwin Arnold wrote of that beatific condition that, and in inverted commas, the dewdrop slips into the shining sea. 
Those who have passed through that most marvellous of experiences know that, paradoxical as it may seem, the sensation is exactly the reverse, and that a far closer description would be that the ocean had somehow been poured into the drop. That consciousness, wide as the sea, with its centre everywhere and its circumference nowhere, is a great and glorious fact. But when a man attains it, it seems to him that his consciousness is widened to take in all that, not that he is merged into something else. End of quote. And Dispensky continues, This pouring of the ocean into the drop occurs because the consciousness never loses itself, i.e. does not disappear, does not extinguish itself. When it seems to us that consciousness is extinguished, in reality it is only changing its form. It ceases to be analogical to ours, and we lose the means of convincing ourselves of its existence. We have no definite data at all to think that it has dissipated. In order to escape from the field possible to our observation, it is sufficient for consciousness to change only a little. In the objective world, indeed, this slipping of the dewdrop into the sea leads to the annihilation of the drop, to the absorption of it by the sea. We have never observed another order of things in the objective world, and therefore cannot imagine it. But in the real, i.e. the subjective world, of course another order must exist and operate. The drop of consciousness merging with the sea of consciousness knows it, but does not itself cease to exist because of that. Therefore, undoubtedly, the sea is absorbed by the drop. In the Letters of Flacus of Plotinus, we find a wonderful description of a psychology and theory of knowledge founded exactly upon the idea of the expansion of the I. And Dispensky quotes, External objects present us only with appearances. Concerning them, therefore, we may be said to possess opinion rather than knowledge. The distinctions in the actual world of appearance are of import only to ordinary and practical men. Our question lies with the ideal reality that exists behind appearance. How does the mind perceive these ideas? Are they without us, and is the reason, like sensation, occupied with objects external to itself? What certainty would we then have, what assurance that our perception was infallible? The object perceived would be something different from the mind perceiving it. We should have then an image instead of reality. It would be monstrous to believe for a moment that the mind was unable to perceive ideal truth exactly as it is, and that we had not certainty and real knowledge concerning the world of intelligence. It follows, therefore, that this region of truth is not to be investigated as a thing external to us, and so only imperfectly known. It is within us, here the objects we contemplate, and that which contemplates are identical, both are thought. The subject cannot surely know an object different from itself. The world of ideas lies within our intelligence. Truth, therefore, is not the agreement of our apprehension of an external object with the object itself. It is the agreement of the mind with itself. Consciousness, therefore, is the sole basis of certainty. The mind is its own witness. Reason sees in itself that which is above itself and its source, and again that which is below itself as still itself once more. 
Knowledge has three degrees, opinion, science, illumination. The means or instrument of the first is sense, of the second, dialectic, and of the third, intuition. To the last, I subordinate reason. It is absolute knowledge founded on the identity of the mind knowing with the object known. There is a raying out of all orders of existence, an external emanation from the ineffable one. There is again a returning impulse, drawing all upwards and inwards towards the centre from whence all came. Dot, dot, dot. The wise man recognises the idea of the good within him. This he develops by withdrawal into the holy place of his own soul. He who does not understand the soul contains the beautiful within itself, seeks to realise beauty without by laborious production. His aim should rather be to concentrate and simplify, and so to expand his being, instead of going out into the manifold, to forsake it for the one, and to float upwards towards the divine fount of being whose stream flows within him. You ask, how can we know the infinite? I answer not by reason. It is the office of reason to distinguish and define. The infinite, therefore, cannot be ranked among its objects. You can only apprehend the infinite by a faculty superior to reason, by entering into a state in which you are your finite self no longer, in which the divine essence is communicated to you. This is ecstasy. It is the liberation of your mind from its finite consciousness. Light can only apprehend like. When you thus cease to be finite, you become one with the infinite. In the reduction of your soul to its simplest self, its divine essence, you realise this union, this identity. But this sublime condition is not of permanent duration. It is only now and then that we can enjoy this elevation above the limits of the body and the world. I myself have realised it but three times as yet, and porphyry hitherto not once. All that tends to purify and elevate the mind will assist you in this attainment and facilitate the approach and the recurrence of these happy intervals. There are, then, different roads by which this end may be reached. The love of beauty which exalts the poet, that devotion to the one and that ascent of science which makes the ambition of the philosopher, and that love and those prayers by which some devout and ardent soul tends in its moral purity towards perfection. These are the great highways conducting to the height above the actual and particular, where we stand in the immediate presence of the infinite, who shines out as from the depths of the soul. End of quote. And Dispensky continues. In another place in his works, Plotinus defines the ecstatic knowledge more exactly, presenting such properties of it as to reveal to us quite clearly that the infinite expansion of subjective knowledge is there meant. And Despensky quotes, When we see God, says Plotinus, we see him not by reason, but by something that is higher than reason. It is impossible, however, to say about him who sees that he sees, because he does not behold and discern two different things, the seer and the thing seen. He changes completely, ceases to be himself, preserves nothing of his eye. Immersed in God, he constitutes one whole with him. 
like the centre of a circle, which coincides with the centre of another circle. End of quote. And end of chapter 19.